So Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord and good morning, beloved saints and friends. It's great to be here and it's great to open up this book of Ephesians. I did preach at our church seven sermons on verses 1 to 10, but today we're just going to give an overview of the 10 verses, which is very, very rich, I believe, and Lord willing, we'll be blessed by his word. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we give thanks for your great loving kindness towards us. And Lord, we just pray at this time that we will get a glimpse of your glory, that we will see the beauties of the gospel, the wonders of your power and wisdom and love and mercy displayed for your people in Christ. And Lord, that you will move the affections of our heart, that you will inform our minds and cause us to do your will. Lord, I pray for us here today, Lord, that you may strengthen those who are weak, comfort those who are down. Lord, that your word may pierce our hearts and cause us to see the beauty and wonders of who Christ actually is, our Lord and our Saviour. And Lord, I pray that your spirit walk amongst us today to mature us and to deepen our understanding of the gospel and of you who has called us. And Lord, I pray also that you may uh, help us, Lord, and equip us to walk worthy of our calling, to imitate you and to be those men and women that you've called us to be. And so, Lord, have your way amongst us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've already mentioned this morning, we're going to look at this wonderful act of salvation and remembering that salvation means to rescue, to deliver someone from harm. And so the question is, what are we being delivered from? And being a Christian is not just recognizing what we're being delivered from, but who we're being delivered to. So as we'll look at in a minute, we'll see that at one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that God and the consequences of sin obviously is death. The wages of sin is death. So we are under God's condemnation. But God, through Christ, delivers us 
out of his condemnation, brings us into his kingdom, makes us alive together with his son so that we could worship him. So what is the prize of the Christian? Is it a good life? Is it money? Um, Is it success? No, the prize is to know God. It is to be reconciled and in a healthy, good relationship with the creator of the universe, the heavens and the earth. And so today, as we look at this amazing text, I hope that we can understand and I hope that it will be explained that salvation is an amazing act of God. It's been done by grace alone. But the grace that saves never comes alone, but rather it comes with power. It comes with wisdom and it produces faith, which causes us to lay hold of Jesus Christ, who saves us completely and transforms us from the inside because he makes us new creatures. And his goal is to conform us to the image of his son. So as we consider this wonderful passage this morning, I want us to consider this idea that was crystal clear, if you look in Ephesians 1, that this perfect God brings about this perfect and complete salvation. That is to say that salvation is a supernatural act of God and it flows out of the divine perfections of who God is. That's why it's perfect. That's why it's certain. That's why it's complete because once again, it's been planned by the Father. It's been paid for by the Son, an actual payment. And it is applied by the Holy Spirit who actually guarantees it. And as we go through this, I I don't want us to forget the relational aspect of salvation, keeping in mind that when Adam sinned, he brought sin into this world and caused everyone born after him to be separated from God. But Christ come to bring us back to him. And so in Ephesians, we see God's divine plan of salvation unfolding in time. The Father planned it in the past. Christ paid for it and the Holy Spirit applies it to us in our present day and age. So in Ephesians 2, we see the nature of salvation unfolding. And I would agree that in Ephesians chapter 2, we see it better explained in these first 10 verses than anywhere else in Scripture. So that's what we're really taking a closer look at today. It's the nature of salvation. What is salvation and what does it look like when it's applied? So this amazing work of God using all of his power, using all of his wisdom, withholding nothing, what does it look like when it's applied to those who it was intended for, to the believer? Well, one thing we do see is that in verses two and five, sorry, in chapter two, we read in verses five and eight, we read, by grace you have been saved. And it's important to note that this verb that has been uh, translated, have been saved, is in the perfect tense. And that simply means that it is an action, it's very important to note this, it means an action that was completed in the past that has ongoing effects. So when the scripture says, have been saved, it means there was an action that was done by God, absolutely completed, and it has ongoing effects. And might I just add that these effects of God's salvation that's in Christ will actually have ongoing effects throughout all of eternity. We will enjoy God, those who believe, throughout all of eternity. But here in this passage, we can see that the, uh, f- the effects of salvation actually take place 
here on earth. It begins here, it finishes there in heaven. So the question I always ask, can these ongoing effects, can this great work of salvation, can it be observed? Is there any real difference in the life of a Christian and the life of a non-Christian? I can't go any further without saying absolutely there is, absolutely. Does God save someone and only to leave them in the same state that they were at? Certainly not. Does God bring someone into a relationship with him only to find out that it's an unhealthy relationship that doesn't actually work properly? May it never be. Does he bring us into relationship with him so that we're still unwilling and unable to function and to relate to him properly and enjoy working with him, walking with him? Certainly not. One thing that we do see in the book of Ephesians is beyond a doubt that salvation is absolutely an act of God alone and it is accomplished by him without any human help. It's a supernatural act of God. And it is because God the Father, by his spirit, unites the believer to Christ by faith. So salvation is certain because it is accomplished in Jesus Christ and it flows out of the divine perfections of who God is. So God's probably the only one, or he is the only one on this world that actually knows definitely what he's doing. And when he intends to do something, he gets it done. Now, I know what my wife may be thinking right now. I'm, I'm in the process of uh, renovating our house and I do intend to do it. It's not exactly getting done, but there's a major difference between us and God, isn't there? And we want to understand that God isn't, Jesus Christ is an actual saviour. He's never meant to be seen as a beggar who's knocking at the, heart of some, knocking at the door of the sinner's heart, hoping that will open up. That's not the saviour that we read about in the scriptures. Christ is not, nor has he ever been, a potential saviour. He's not a hypothetical saviour. He didn't come to make us savable, he came to save. He didn't come to potentially make us redeemable, he came to redeem us out of slavery to sin and bring us into the kingdom of his son to purify himself, a holy people that was zealous to do good works. And so I want us to consider the power and the wisdom that is displayed in Christ and his work that is the absolute foundation of our salvation. The Christian salvation in, is in Christ and because it's in Christ, it's absolute, it's perfect, it's finished, it's guaranteed, it's definite and it unquestionably brings about God's intended purpose, which is to save his people from their sins so that we would be his people and that he would be our God. So before we start to look at these verses in chapter two, I want us to recognize that these verses are not disconnected from the rest of the scripture. They're not disconnected from the, the rest of God's divine plan of salvation that's marked out for us in chapter one of Ephesians. But rather, it's very much connected to God's definite plan to save himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so I just want us, before we look at chapter two, to go back to chapter one and have a look at the absolute certainty and clarity which, with which God actually speaks in regards to salvation. 
And we look back in chapter 1, looking in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is not something that God just come up with in the last minute. This is something that was planned even before time began. And you can see from the very beginning in verse 3 even, it says that he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Notice it's God who initiates the blessing in verse 3. Verse 4, he chose us. We didn't choose him. We weren't alive before the foundation of the earth. But notice it's God that initiates with absolute certainty. And we read in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. What does the word predestined mean? It means to decide upon beforehand, to predetermine. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins, which is according to the riches of his grace. So we see there in verses five to seven, God has predestined his people to be united to Christ and in him we are absolutely forgiven. We are absolutely redeemed. In other words, God predestined to save himself a people that were enslaved to sin. He brings them out of the slave market by paying the price. When God actually became a man and went to that cross, he purchased his people. He made a payment. It's a definite payment that is purchasing definite people. And he brings us out of that slave market with absolute certainty And he makes us alive and forgives us of our sin. And in verse 11, we see, and I went with the ASV translation. If you want to debate with me after, we can do that. But it talks about, both are theologically correct. We, We have an inheritance in Christ, but here I believe the better reading is that we were made an inheritance having been foreordained. In other words, God has predestined, he has complete control over all things and he has set everything in place in order to make us his own and we are his inheritance. And as we'll see through the the verses today, we are to display the riches of his grace. So when God displays his beauty to this world and just declares the wonders of his grace and mercy, he points to the church. He says, that's it right there. That is a display of my grace. That is my inheritance. So see the certainty of God's plan, how he answers and he overcomes every single obstacle that mankind has because of our sin. He overcomes it. He makes us alive and he saves us utterly to the end. He even overcomes our biggest problem, which is, now I know by nature we all think our biggest problem is something out there, but as I just explained beforehand, I learned the hard way. (laughs) The problem is us, it's us. Our biggest problem is ourself and our nature. When Adam sinned, sin came into the world and by nature everyone that is born after him is not born different from him. No, we're born with the same corruption that Adam brought into the world. So by nature, we are sinners. That's why you don't need to teach a child to lie or to be selfish. They do it naturally. Why? Because we have Adam's curse upon us from birth. 
And so you read there in Ephesians 2, and it's so important to know this. And many churches may not have heard this. I'm sure you've heard it here. Because the message these days is God just loves you and you're just so special and he has a plan for your life and you're wonderful and we just got to unlock that beauty so that the world can know how great you are. But the scripture has a completely different uh, view of us. And we see that in Ephesians chapter two, verses one to three, and it's so important that we all note this because we will never understand and appreciate grace in the way we ought to. It will never move us in the way that it's intended to. We'll never pursue Christ and appreciate what he's done and pursue holiness and to live for him if we don't understand the hole in which he's dragged us out of. All of us. Might I add, and I always say this to my wife because my wife was brought up in church and people always used to say, oh, well, he's been to jail, but she was... Uh, in church and, and, and I'm the bad one but in actual fact the scripture would say the opposite because Jesus hated religious hypocrites and when my wife got saved she was brought up in church and that's exactly what she called herself before she was a Christian so it's talking about everyone those who were brought up in church those who were outside of church and we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and you were dead in trespasses and sins in other words we were completely dead to truth. We had no affection for it, no desire for God, no willingness to want to follow him or to obey him or to even know the truth. But we were doing something, weren't we? We weren't completely dead, but we were spiritually dead. And we read, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, we were dead in our sin. We have no affection for truth, no affection for God. We're simply following the course of this world. What is the course of this world? It is every idea and worldview that comes separated from what the scripture teaches. It's everything. It's religious hypocrites. It's secularism. It's humanism. It's Marxism. It's communism. It's everything. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's the course of this world. So that's why people say there's a million paths to hell. There's only one path to heaven. So we're walking on this course of this world, which what does it do? It gives us what we want. It fulfills our lusts, the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. And we're following the prince of the power of the air. All of us by nature. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan. So by nature, we're dead in sin. We follow the course of this world and we're empowered and energized by Satan. Every single person that came after Adam, by nature. And then we see that uh, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, in other words, we have a spirit working within us that if it characterizes us by, so if someone was, if God was to point at us and give us one phrase that was to properly articulate who we are, it would be disobedience, rebels. That's who we are by nature. We're dead in our sin, we follow the course of this world and we are by nature rebellions, rebels. And then we read in verse three, we follow the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You can see how dark the corruption goes in that we have been corrupted by sin. It's corrupted all of our faculties and now we're enslaved to it. 
if you can picture a zombie, a dead person, walking off a cliff to its destruction, not even knowing where it's heading, that is us by nature, corrupted by sin, enslaved, and we love the things that are taking us to the, down the path of destruction and condemnation, and we don't even know it. And by nature, if we haven't even got the picture clear, by nature it says we are children of wrath. That's why it's so unhelpful when people do evangelism these days and they go, man, God loves you. Jesus has a plan for your life. You know what? You're special. That's contrary to what the scripture's saying. We're not being honest and having integrity and outlining what the scripture says, the danger that they, those people are in. By nature, we are children of wrath. In other words, we're people that are clearly deserving of God's wrath. And from this state that we see, God absolutely intervenes in verse five. We see that God absolutely intervenes and he makes a very significant difference. And once again, he does it by himself. He does it apart from any human effort. Look at the turning point in verse four. So we see the nature of us where we are by ourselves, left alone in our sinful nature. Verse four, you see this very defining verse where the difference comes in. Who makes the difference? Same as in chapter one, but God. God steps into this mess because of what? His rich mercy, because of his great love, because of his kindness, you'll read in verse six, and because of his grace in verse five and eight. So it is God's attributes, his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness. Because of who God is, he steps into this mess that we're in where we're heading down the path of destruction, in verse five it says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. How good is this? We're in, a, we're in a path of destruction, the most unworthy people you could ever come across and God steps in because of who he is and he picks us up, he saves us, he makes us alive and look at what he does in verse six. He actually raises us up together. Notice there's three things that take place from verse five to verse seven. And all of them are actions initiated and done by God alone. Verse five, the action, he makes us alive. Verse six, he raises us up with him. He seats us together in the heavenly places in Jesus. So you probably heard a few stories of rags to riches this is the most extravagant picture of rags to riches that you will ever hear of we're in that state the lowest place that we could ever be God picks us up he makes us alive he seats us together with Christ and he puts us in the highest place where Christ is where he reigns he's the king it's his kingdom and he brings us into it why? To, di to display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. And we see there in verse uh, seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So God does all of this so he can point to the church as I mentioned before, he's putting us on display. He's showing, he's saying, look at that. That's my power, that's my grace, that's my love and my mercy. See those people? I'm putting my attributes on display through them. 
See how clearly the scriptures presents that all of God's saving acts are simply initiated by him. He alone is the one who saves. And verse eight makes that even clearer. Again, as we look at verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Salvation is an act of God that is done both for us and in us. In other words, Christ, the one who we sinned against, the eternal son of God, God that was never created, he always existed, he stepped into time and he became a man and he lived the perfect sinless life which you and I have not lived, we have broken the law. He came as a man, he fulfilled the law on behalf of his people God's anger was towards us, but Christ went to the cross to swallow up that anger, to take away that guilt and that shame so that we could be forgiven. But it is Christ and his perfect life, his death on that cross that took away the guilt, that paid the price, that satisfied the justice of God, that paid the penalty. And when he rose from the dead so that we could have life in him, and that life, might I add, is intended to be lived out to him and for him. It is Christ alone that saves. And once again, it is an act that it is something that is done for us and it is something that is done in us. So what does God actually do? As we read in verse five, he breathes actual life into us and he causes us to believe. And if you read in that section, I don't have time to go into it now, but one of the things that I love about the Greek language is it just adds that little bit of clarity to each text. But when you understand the Greek language in verses eight to nine, you'll see that it's not just the salvation that is the gift. And I preached a whole sermon on this, explaining that it is the faith that is also part of that gift. It's something that's given to us. God actually breathes new life into us and he causes us to believe. Remember, we're like the walking dead, following our sinful nature, living in hypocrisy, following the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What does he do? He awakens us out of that state, helps us to understand the darkness of our sin, who it's against, helps us to see the beauty and wonders of who Christ is and actually gives us a desire to wanna to follow him. Keep in mind, it is God's new life which produces faith. In other words, God gives us new life. The first breath that a Christian breathes is faith. It's faith in Christ. And think about it. Why would someone believe if they were not a new creature? Why? I remember my adoptive family when I was somewhere down there in the middle of that, those ones in Melbourne. And the father said to me, he goes, why, would, why don't you just stop doing what you're doing? And I looked at him and I just kind that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would I stop doing the things I love? And might I add, I do make more money than you. <laughs> I waste it all, but I enjoy this. I like doing this. Why would anyone stop doing the things that they like doing unless someone had supernaturally made them alive and given them a whole new perspective and whole new desires to go completely the other way? That's what the church is. 
the church is made up of new creatures who were once dead in sin. They've been made alive. They follow Christ and they adore him and they seek to follow him with everything they are. Salvation begins and ends with God. It's what God has done for us and what he does in us. And verses eight and nine, I love it how God's so clear because I just love clarity. I like to be certain. And you can see in verse eight, nine and 10, he nails the, the, the point even clearer to show that it's nothing that we contribute to our salvation. This is not of your own doing, he says. It's a gift, not a result of works so that no one can boast. In other words, salvation has come. It's got nothing to do with who you are. We've already explained who we are in verse one to three. There's nothing there that warrants God to save, is there? And it's nothing that you've done. God doesn't look at our works and see anything but filthy rags. And so now as we look at verse 10, Paul even adds to that by making this very same point that salvation originates with God and it doesn't come from any human effort. He does this by using the word in verse 10, by using the word for, which refers us back to the verb in uh, verse eight, which is you have been saved by grace. And this is another reason in verse 10 that demonstrates that it is grace alone. Now follow me carefully because this is very, very important. It's a very uh, important point in this text. He's already made two points. It's not of you, it's not of your works. And now he's about to make a third point to show that it's of grace only. So what's Paul's next point? Is that he demonstrates that salvation is all a work of grace and it is accomplished apart from any human effort. Look with me in verse 10, where we see, for we are his workmanship. How many times have you read that and just brushed over it and thought, well, I don't need to really look too deeply into what that means. Well, today I want to just briefly for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this word workmanship, it means something made. It means a workpiece, a workmanship. The word is used in Romans 1 and follow me because it's only used in one other place in the, the New Testament and it's used in Romans 1 verse 20 and it's speaking about creation itself. And I'm gonna read verse 20 in Romans 1. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in things that have been made in the things that have been made that's the same word been made workmanship being made it's the same word in the greek so they are without excuse and so here we see the same word being translated being made which is in reference to creation and the term is used in ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 it's translated as masterpiece or handiwork so Paul's point is here, listen, is that Jesus, is that Jesus, sorry, as just as when God made the world, he had no help from anyone. That's the point. 
Just as when God made the whole world, he had no help from anyone, but rather he spoke creation into existence by himself. He made it. And so it is too with the new creature that is in Christ, he made them apart from any human effort, apart from anything that we done. Just as he created the world, he also created the church, the new creatures, and both were made apart from any human effort. The term's only used twice in the New Testament, and it's speaking of God's power and wisdom to create. So Paul's point is here is that salvation is not of your own doing since it is God himself who made you alive and he made you into a new creature. So that's the point. We were saved by grace alone. It's not of yourself. It's not according to anything that you did. He actually recreated you. He made you alive. He dragged you out of that mess and he put you in the highest place because remember, you were dead. And so we read about this brilliant new creation throughout all of scripture and we know the famous verse there in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That is the picture of the church. The old has passed away. God has created himself a, a new people from every tribe, tongue and nation so that they may worship him. And we see this same thing in the second part of Ephesians, chapter four, verse 22, where Paul encourages us that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So the result of God's new creation that he does in the Christian, in many ways, it's greater than creation itself. Isn't that amazing that God created the world? He made it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. It really happened in six literal days. And then we have this new creation that is the church that is probably, and I would say, exceeds the power that God put into creation itself. Why? Because God takes a people that are vile and corrupt and alienated from him. He takes those people who are unwilling and he makes them new creatures who are willing. And he makes them new and he gives them a new heart and he puts his spirit within them. And he, he causes them to want to follow him freely from the heart and desire him and nothing else. That is the power of this new creation that is the Christian, the church. And we read about this and just, just listen to the certainty of this in, in Ezekiel 36. You'll see this certainty of God's new covenant where he promises to do this. And this is one of the most amazing things that we read about Ephesians and in, in the New Testament is everything that was promised to Abraham, everything that was spoken of throughout all the prophets, all pointed to Christ, all pointed to this, uh, this new creation, this new people. And now here it is. But what was spoken about in the Old Testament? Listen to the certainty in which God's plan is spoken of. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Did God know the answer to a rebellious people that he'd been watching for thousands of years? Absolutely. Had it all planned. See again, as we just read, the absolute certainty of God's plan to save himself a people, to transform them in order that they may worship him. He knows what he's doing and it's evident. The Christian is created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God's purpose here in Ephesians and throughout all of scripture is that he would recreate himself a new people from Jew and from Gentile and that he would make them into a new uh, people. He would rescue them and he would make them both willing and able to walk in that newness of life, that they would enjoy a healthy relationship with God so that we can call him our father and we can say sincerely, we are his people and the world can see it. So when someone is born again, they are born from above. They are literally a new creature. Every Christian is a new creature. So the question we need to ask ourselves today, have we been born again? We are literally new creatures. I don't use much examples much, but um, I do have one in here. I was talking about my bathroom renovations, just to break things up a bit. And I've, I've, uh, I have done some work in the house and I have done my bathroom and by the grace of God, I boast only in him alone. A lot of people have come in and they've complimented it. But no one's come in and said, it looks exactly the same. We've turned three rooms into one. We've put new tiles. There's a new, it, it's not finished yet. <laughs> I can uh, admit it but it's noticeably different beyond the doubt and everyone can see that. And so is the Christian. We're not perfect, we're progressing, but there is an absolute noticeable difference because we have been made new by the power of God. The result of someone that has been saved by grace is that they will do good works. So it's not the good works that saves, but rather the good works are a result of salvation. Grace which produces new life in us also produces faith that unites us together with Christ who saves us and this new life is the very root of our salvation and good works are the fruit of it. So God gives us new life and out of that new life, good works and a transformed life are produced. But it is a result of receiving salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. And I hope that's clear. So it is by grace we are saved and it is through faith alone in Christ. But by Christ dying for us and what he did for us, we are united together with him. We are supernaturally made alive and he gives us the gift of faith, which unites us together with Christ. And we are saved, but we are also transformed by that grace so that we are now willing to do what we were both unwilling and unable to do 
while we were dead in our sin. So once again, this result of God's new creation is that God's creation does good works and it only points to God's amazing grace. It displays his power in that he can take someone who is vile and corrupt, which is all of us, and he recreates us so that our lives will be devoted to him and displayed as a picture of his mercy. So once again, God by himself, apart from any human effort, he makes us into new creatures and displays to display the riches of his grace. And the effects of this grace can be seen in a life that is lived out to the glory of God through faith, which produces a transformed life, which results in doing good works. So I'm gonna skip a little bit and just go straight to the end here because we have noticed that in the end of verse 10, we see that God has actually prepared beforehand certain works that we should walk in them, right? So just as we close here and make a couple of uh, points of application, we can see that God saves us from that walk that we were in in verses one to three. Not only does God predetermine and elect his people, but he also, because that word prepare beforehand, it has the idea of predestining. He has not only predestined his people to be adopted, he's predestined a path for us to walk on. And it's a safe path. It's the path where we walk with him and enjoy him and we live righteous lives according to what is written by the power of his spirit. So isn't that amazing that God actually, not only he saves us, but he gives us a new path to walk on and it's a safe path. It's a safe place because we're in the hands of Christ. So what do we make of all of this? Now, quick three points that I quickly wanna make as we close. How should we respond to hearing all of this? Number one, we should be a thankful people. We no longer find pleasure in gratifying the flesh or, the, or no longer find pleasure in the things of this world because we know we are complete in Christ alone. We find that we are content in Him and Him alone. A new creature looks at the things of this world and just says, that's nothing, there's nothing there. Gratifying the flesh, gratifying our selfish desires, it only leads to misery and destruction. But the new creature who has been made alive sees Christ as someone who is absolutely precious. And we should be a thankful person. Um, as a footnote, do you know what thankfulness is the opposite to? Complaining. <laughs> and... As I say to my children, thankfulness is much more fun than complaining because complaining makes us miserable. But we as Christians who are new creatures, we're thankful people, why? Because we have been shown so much grace and we recognize it and we meditate on it and we enjoy the riches of God's grace every single day. The fact that we can breathe, we're healthy, we're strong, we have one another. The list is endless on how much we have to be thankful for. But the one point we wanna make is that we have everything that we have simply by God's grace. And we need to acknowledge that in order to be thankful. Second point, as a result of understanding the nature of salvation, we should be a people that are consecrated unto the Lord. My oldest daughter's name is Kadesha. What does it mean? It comes from the Hebrew word Kadesh, which means consecrated unto the Lord. Now, 
I don't think you'll ever come up with a better name for a daughter. (laughs) But the point is, is that we as Christians are now set apart. We've been released from the dominion of sin. We've been released from the things of this world. So there's no, there's no, it makes no sense to see Christians fulfilling the lust of the flesh, walking in darkness, living in sin, pursuing the things of the world. Christ released us from those bondages. We don't need to be held captive by those things, nor does the Christian want to be because they're pursuing Christ. And so as a Christian, reading about the nature of salvation, we ought to want to be devoted to him because that's what we've been saved. We've been saved from condemnation and we've been saved to the God who made the heavens and the earth so that we could worship him and know him. And thirdly, as we close, might I just add a very helpful point. I believe I found this very helpful that we should be a single-minded people that are devoted in our service to the Lord. And that's the idea of we have been saved for good works. The idea is we actually do something and we do it with passion and we do it with commitment because we're now we have been made alive, we've been brought into his kingdom and that we are saved to work hard and to be devoted to God because he has purchased us out of slavery so that we could know him and serve him. And our greatest pleasure in life will be when we do that with our whole heart because then and then only will we understand and appreciate the beauty of who God is and when we can actually appreciate how great life is when you apply what is written to your life. I went to a wedding uh, just on uh, on the weekend and someone, uh, Todd, the other pastor at our church, he he said, oh, these are all the points about marriage, helpful points of application. And he kept saying, there's no secret, there's no secret, they're things that we all know. And in churches, that is most of the case. But I leant over to a, a brother in front of me, I said, there actually is a secret, there is. You gotta do it. (laughs) But there's a secret before that because you'll only do it if you truly believe it. So what it should be is we must believe, we must believe. We must not only believe in Christ as the savior, the only savior, we must believe all that is written so that we can truly benefit from the riches and the treasures that is hidden in Christ and revealed through his word. So let's pray and ask God to help us in this. Father, we thank you that you are God and we thank you that you are so gracious. And Lord, I pray that you, by your grace, will continue to help your people to stand firm in the richness of your grace, that you will cause us to follow you with our whole heart, to be devoted to you, that we may be a people that examine ourselves through your word that we may be a people that put to death the deeds of the flesh, turning our eyes away from worthless things, that we may see you for who you are and be in awe of you, that we may desire to walk with you and live our lives worthy of the calling to which you've called us to. Father, I pray for any that may not know you, that you will shine the light of Christ into the hearts of them even now, Lord. Help us to examine ourselves honestly in light of your truth, Lord. And please be gracious and merciful to us always. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks, brother. A lot of really good gospel truth in that sermon. Good analogy, too. You said you don't really use analogies. I thought there were some great analogies. The zombie off the cliff, the out of the hole. The, there's some great stuff there. So thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time. You know, um, I don't want to, I want us to reflect on that gospel truth. But just, just to note, too, as a way of encouragement, I was thinking about it when Shane was like um, trying to, you know, go through those three, not trying, he was, but going through those three applicational points, you, you might be tempted to think, oh, well, yeah, he's a, he's a, that's one of Rob's friends, and he's a pastor, uh, you, you might, and he's an elder at his church, but he's a lay elder, he's like, he's not like some paid pastor guy, like he works a normal job, sorry, Dan, we don't work a normal job, but he works a normal job like all the rest of you guys. And that's not to lift up shame, but just say, wow, look how the Lord is continuing to use. That, that's what I, I want us to be encouraged by as well and to be and have that that truth and have us sit on that gospel to, to today, what he proclaimed, the truth of that and really sit on that and have that really, I guess, just impact us and have that shape the way that we think. That That's what I want this church to be. That, that So thank you, brother. The gospel was so clear and crisp in that. So very encouraging. You know, if um, I was also thinking about this when I was sitting there. In most Western societies, people that have an affiliation with church, meaning um, they come to church, maybe they come randomly or maybe their family is a Christian, would I, I would imagine probably just assume that they're born again. Remember the phrase he was just using? In fact, I would, I would guess, I would venture to say that probably... Many of you here this morning would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. But I think you, what you really need to do is process those things and say, have I truly been born again? Have my affections been shifted? Have I gone from deadness to life, right? Like, is that, is, am I really sucked this down, so to speak? Is this really real? Have I really, like, embodied these things? And if so, thank God. And you know what? We need to actually... We, be thankful in the way that we tangibly uh, express that worship right now through, through grabbing the little juice and the bread as a way to say, yes, when I grab this, uh, the little wafer and little juice, I, I'm identifying with Christ. That, that everything that Shane was just saying, I can say, yes, I once was dead, not anymore because of Jesus. Not anymore because of what I'm now truly born again. I'm hoping and trusting in Jesus alone right now for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. If that's you, celebrate that. Let's do that together as a body, right? Christ didn't just call individuals, but a body. Look, if that's not you, remember I said Westerners, we kind of, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. If that's not you, do not take communion. Do not just, oh yeah, casually, flippantly grab it. Oh yeah, I guess the person next to me do it, so I'm just going to do it. Listen, let me be very clear on this. You are actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself to do that. Do you understand? I'm trying to help you. So, so don't, don't do that. This is for those that are saying, yes, I'm in fact converted. I am a Christian. Now, I know that might sound kind of like, geez, man, we got, this is sermon number two. What are you doing here? Okay. I'm just trying to drive home the, the gravity of this for you. Okay. So let's celebrate for those of us that are in Christ. There's no reason no reason that we should be celebrating that if God didn't first come to us in grace. So let's, let's reflect on the song and let's, um, I'd ask the ushers to come forward and pass out. And again,
Don't just grab it because it's the right thing to do. Grab it because you're trusting in Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Okay? Let's, let's uh, go to communion.
Well, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I just feel totally soaked in gospel truth this morning. Um, and I'm so thankful that it is all on God, that God is the one who instigated and can, continues the work um, in me, in you. And I'm excited to see what God keeps on doing with us in that. Um, as we head on out today, um, keep chatting to people, particularly outside in the nice warm sun, um, if it's that still going. And um, yeah, I don't think I have anything else to say, so I'm going to leave with a few verses from Ephesians just later on in the book. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Catch you next week. Thank you.